<clears throat> as I thought through kind of five parts to this, th and this is really a, sort of more of an expositional teaching as opposed to a, a real message because I'm not going to have a certain number of points and then, uh, and then, and then a, an illustration and all those kinds of things. So I, this is kind of presented more like I might present a lesson, but a couple things. So I think it, in apostasy, like what are, what are some questions that people might want answered specifically to help them? Uh, again, th the idea behind all preaching and teaching is to help people. Um, it's not just to share thoughts that really stand out to you or things like that. It's to really help people. So we're going to start, we're going to look a, a little bit. I have an introductory thought here. The first thing we'll talk about, about, um, you know, the importance of Scripture. We'll talk about a definition for apostasy because it's important that we kind of establish that. We'll move on to some really important scriptural passages and what they say about apostasy, what they say about unbelief in general. Uh, we'll look at some, maybe some reasons why there, there are a lot of people, and even sometimes well-known people have been in ministry for a long time that apostatize. By the way, I, I was typing out my notes, and I kept typing in apostatize, but the word is apparently apostatize. Anyway, so there's that, uh, why, why people some, sometimes apostatize outwardly, but also the last question, and this is kind of what I wanted to get to because I thought this would be helpful for you all. Is it possible for me to become apostate? And that's a really important question, right? At the end of the day, that's something that we all should know. So, uh, first of all, what, what exactly is apostasy? Well, to my way of thinking, it, it, and we have biblical definitions of it, and we know what the Bible says about things like falling away, there are really two elements to it. It, it kind of happened two phases, if you want to think of it that way. But before we discuss those things, I, I want to emphasize this. This is really, really important that you get this. Apostasy is always in reference to the Word of God. Always. The Bible, which reveals the truth of God, tells us things that are true. And when people defect, they're not defecting from, uh, they're not defecting from a uh, denomination. They're not defecting from Christianity even. We might use those terminologies. They're actually defecting from the word of God. And that's the only thing you defect from. Um, you, don't, you don't defect from prophecies that were given by somebody in a church somewhere or other things of those nature. So the Bible states that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know this verse well, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture given by inspiration of God. And the Bible also states that the words of God are pure like silver refined in a furnace seven times over. That's Psalm 12 verse 6. That's a beautiful poetic way of, of, of explaining um, how true and right and pure God's words are. Romans 3, 4, which we've been in very recently, so we've been in the chap uh, third chapter of Romans, also says that in the judgment, God will be proven true and every man who rebelled against him will be proven a liar. There is no such thing, again, as apostasy outside of comparing a person's beliefs to the word of God. And when you compare a person's beliefs and teachings to the word of God itself, you can always determine if somebody is apostate or somebody is an unbeliever. Um, so again, what, in the realm of Christianity and what we call, might call Christendom, there are a thousand, thousand conflicting viewpoints on all kinds of doctrinal issues, but we always come back to the scriptures. Any evaluation of a person's faith, your faith, my faith, a friend's faith, whoever it is, must not come from our own thoughts, must not come from our own interpretations, but directly from the scripture. Now, why am I saying the same thing over and over again? Because this is pretty important to get right from the beginning. Um, the only way to evaluate apostasy properly is to see what the scriptures say about a person's beliefs and teaching. Um, and if a person does not have Jesus as his Lord, as Jesus as his master, 
um, he will almost assuredly at some point dispute things in God's word. He will surely do that. So point number one, that little introductory thought there is just the primacy or the primacy of scripture. Apostasy is always in reference to the word of God. That leads me to point number two. So that was just a little bit introductory. We want to talk about a definition of apostasy, and we're going to look at actually some examples of, of, of what apostasy actually looks like lived out. So apostasy can be defined as, quote, the abandonment of or a willful falling away from the faith. You abandon the faith or you purposely, willfully walk away from the faith. So one more time, an abandonment of or a willful falling away from the faith. So here's where I said, in, in practice, I, I see really two elements or two phases of apostasy as they're actually worked out in a person's life. The first one would be a shift in thinking or desires. A shift in thinking or desires, particularly thinking about God's word. Um, and, and, and you do see this consistently. I'll, I'll share with you some examples of people who at one point appeared to be right down the line doctrinally, appeared to be on the outside, but it's somewhere along the line, their thoughts begin to change about that. Um, I used to think, that, so these people might say th things like, I used to think God's word was true, but now I'm not so sure, or I even feel maybe offended by some of the things in scripture. I look at them and I go, oh, that seems really harsh, or that seems too harsh. Um, uh, that, uncertainly, uh, that uncertainty that, that settles into the heart eventually results in abandonment of the faith altogether. It's going to get there, it's just working its way out over time. It's not uncommon for people to struggle with or question God's promises. Now that is a normal thing because life is tough. There's a lot of things even in the scriptures that you look at and go, man, that, that, that seems hard. Even David, you, you read through the Psalms and you see this over and over again in the Psalms, correct? Even David struggles with what's going on at times or Asaph, uh, another writer of the Psalms, struggles with, what, with what's going on. Um, but they come back and they say, nevertheless, my faith is in you, my trust is in you, I have no other. However, for the apostate, the wedge gets bigger and bigger and bigger and they eventually abandon the idea. Usually they abandon the idea of God altogether. That's what you really see. It's almost like they don't even, generally speaking, don't even seem to go towards another religious system. It's just a great distance, a great gulf, that, and really an infinite gulf that develops between them and God. Now, when your thinking or your desires change, what's gonna come next? And that leads me to the next kind of sub-point under this. It's gotta result in an outward change in behavior, right? Has to. Once doubt has settled deeply into the mind, it must necessarily result in changes in behavior. This, so this kind of person will Maybe slowly, it might happen progressively over time, stop attending church services. They'll definitely stop reading their Bible if they were doing that. They'll stop praying. And here's a key thought too, right? They'll stop spending time with believers. They'll stop spending time with believers. There's no point in them continuing to spend time with believers, with uh, people who are really committed to their faith, since there's no longer really common ground to stand on. It begins to rub them the wrong way. And you understand why? Because they have different perspectives on things in the world. Um, the Bible just kind of becomes another book, uh, maybe another helpful book to some people, maybe that's good for you, but it just doesn't work for me anymore, they might say things like that. So apostasy begins in the mind, and I would add too, I think oftentimes it begins in the desires of the heart. 
the things that people really want to be able to do to live out. But it eventually has to result in outward, outward actions. Um, and again, those two steps, the movement from the mind and the heart into the outward actions, that may happen over a period of, it may even be years, but it will happen in the, in the person who has more of an apostate mind. Again, person who's not truly born again. Uh, testimonies of people who have abandoned the faith actually bear this out. You see this in the things that they say when they're interviewed. And Okay, so next one is, uh, I, I'm going to just put this up on the screen. I don't, I don't have a video for this, but uh, the next one is uh, by a guy named Bart, Bart Ehrman. I want to read a portion. Sorry, it's a little bit small here, but uh, I'll go ahead and uh, let you see up on the screens. So Bart Ehrman is uh, a, very, a very famous... Um, uh, if you call him biblical scholar, um, but he's uh, not a believer. At one point, he claims to have been a believer. He, he walked away from the faith, and now basically his entire life is devoted to turning people away from the faith, um, proving that the scriptures uh, have a lot of errors and contradictions and those kinds of things. Um, he, he, he would claim to believe in some uh, form of theology. It, it's, it's really kind of confusing, but he's really kind of set himself up as his own God at this point. So let me read a few things that he says. It was a Presbyterian seminary, so most of my friends from those days were heading to the Presbyterian ministry and are still there. I myself was active in an evangelical church in those days, running the adult education programs. When I got into my PhD program, I continued on in the church. By that time, we had moved to an American Baptist church. It's an interesting denomination, not as consistently conservative theologically or politically as the Southern Baptist Church has now become. My church was certainly conservative in many ways, but it was in Princeton, and there was a broad range of theological and political views there. I was at the time heading toward a more liberal view of things in every way as I advanced in my education. That's his emphasis that he puts on that. During the second year of my PhD program, the pastor of the church left, and the governing board asked if I would serve as an interim pastor for a year, so I did. Preached most weeks on the radio, performed church duties and services. Funerals were not high on my list of pleasurable pastimes. Hmm, interesting, I wonder why. I mean, nobody, likes, nobody would like doing a funeral, but it's interesting to think about where he's coming from theologically. Visited the sick and grieving, organized and ran the whole thing, and, wa and was losing my faith. I don't need to explain why here, but he actually does explain why in the next <laughs> sentence. Just one very quick anecdote. One Sunday, I gave a sermon dealing with how a certain passage of the Bible tried to explain why there can be such intense suffering in a world created by a good God. Afterward, a parishioner came up to me, a lovely man with a gentle disposition, with tears in his eyes and gave me a hug. He and his wife were stalwart members of the church. Their 17-year-old son had committed suicide the year before, and they didn't know how to handle it, how to make sense of it, how to have faith in the light of it. This kind soul simply appreciated someone actually talking about the hard problems in the church, and this is my emphasis, even if there were no obvious answers. A um, couple brief items of note in, in this post. Um, I, I want you to think in, in a couple ways here. Number one, Bart Ehrman entered a area that, an, a, an environment that he says had theologically diverse views. Uh, that's a fancy way, kind of, of saying that he started rubbing elbows with people that didn't really believe in the Bible. I mean, I, I don't know, it, it's just, that, that's really what he's saying. Theologically diverse is the same thing as not committed to truth, so. Number two, he did not have any obvious answers to the problem of suffering. 
you are going to struggle with Christianity if you don't have an answer to the issue of suffering. And I'm going to come back to this later. But that's a nice way of saying the Bible doesn't really have any good reasons for why suffering happens. So I'll address, as I said, I'll address this point later because it is critical for the follower of Jesus Christ to understand what suffering is about and why it happens. Um, and, and I'll just plant this thought right now. The apostate cannot possibly understand this part. I don't mean like it, it, it doesn't make sense. It's, 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 they can't experience it. They can't understand it. They, they can't, it will never make sense to them because suffering is, is key in the Bible in terms of our relationship to God. But I'll come back to that later. So we'll leave those, some of those thoughts to the side. We'll come back to them. Let me move now on in, in the, the next uh, major segment. So this is the third major segment uh, of the teaching here. Scriptural teachings on the nature of unbelief. It's really important that we go to, obviously, what the scriptures say, right? So that was kind of all introductory stuff, just setting some things up, giving some testimonies from actual people who have left the faith. Now we want to look at what the Bible says. So here are some key teaching passages, and if I had a key passage for the night, it probably would be Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. So if you want to flip there in your Bibles, Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. It'll give you just a moment, but I want to read that entire passage <clears throat> as you're turning there, let me, let me just set up Matthew 13. Again, this is all very relevant to, I think, understanding the bigger story. Matthew 13 is a really key passage in the book of Matthew. It's a turning point. And without kind of going through the entire book of Matthew and going verse, you know, chapter by chapter, basically you have the story of Jesus' birth. You have him connected to the story of the Old Testament, Abraham and David. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the promised Messiah. He has all the pedigree. Everything's right. You have his birth. You have his testing in the wilderness. You have the introduction of John the Baptist, who is his forerunner. And what is the message that's being preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John preaches that. And what does Jesus come as soon as he's preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is largely Jesus' explanation of what a kingdom citizen will live like. So if you choose to repent and join me and become my disciple, then I will set up my kingdom and you will live in this kingdom. But here's how you must behave. Here's what kingdom citizens behave like. That's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Then you get on and, and you, you see him coming into uh, a, lo a lot of disagreement with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They don't like him because he doesn't follow their traditions. He doesn't do things the way that they do. And he's telling them they're wicked people and they need to repent. And that is not something that people who are rebellious against God want to hear, ever. So you get to chapter 12, 11 and 12, and you get these really significant breaks between Jesus and the Pharisees. They accuse him, for example, of casting out a demon by the power of Beelzebub. In other words, they're saying to him, the only reason you could cast out that demon is you are the prince of demons. And Jesus says to them, any sin can be forgiven, but if you're going to take a miracle of God that has made a man whole and call it the power of Satan, there's no hope for you. There's nothing more to show you. If I show you a miracle, I show you the goodness of God, and you take it, and you spit upon it, what else is there for you? 
And so then in Matthew 13 now, we get this, the kingdom parables, but it's the mystery kingdom parables. God is going to do something different now. The kingdom is actually going to uh, take a different form for a time until the Lord returns and sets it up later. It's going to be the church age. And so the Matthew 13 parables are all about the church age, which is, as the Bible calls it, brand new teaching. A lot of what Jesus is saying is connected to things in the Old Testament. But in Matthew 13, he is actually giving brand new revelation. And this would have been really surprising to the Jews hearing it because rabbis didn't give brand new information. They just rehashed every things that previous rabbis had said before. So he's giving them brand new information about this, this kingdom age, this church age, and what it's going to look like. So with that as the setup, let's read Matthew chapter 13, verses, uh, starting in verses 24 through 30. <clears throat> Another parable he put forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst, thou, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The church age will be characterized by seed being sown in a field. Yeah. So all of the parables, all the Matthew 13 parables are giving us new information about this church age and what it's going to be like. And again, now with 2,000 years of experience, right, we can look back on these, oh, wow, that, that's exactly what's happened. And, and this is no, no, no exception. The seed in these parables is defined in the first parable, which we've skipped over for just a moment, so sorry about that, but I wanted to come to this one first. The seed is defined in the first parable. The seed is a reference to the word of God or the gospel. That's what the seed is. It's cast out into the field. Um, the field is the world, or in this case, you could, you could argue it's the church as well, but it's in, in the first parable, it's definitely the world. And the wheat and the tares are people. The wheat are the true believers. Those who spring up, and why are wheat uh, synonymous with true believers? Because the wheat actually bears fruit, or it bears kernels. Right. It bears something useful to the master of the field. The only way, um, uh, no, the tares uh, look exactly like the wheat from the outside. So, um, uh, Carly, if you have a picture of the wheat and the tares, if it should be somewhere. Okay, so this is kind of a drawing of what wheat and tares look like. And then the next slide as well should have, there you go. When you're looking at it out in the open field, it's really hard to tell the difference. They look almost identical, really quite identical. The only difference is this. When you go and you peel back that outer husk, the wheat actually has a grain inside. When you, peel out, when you peel back the husk on the darnel or the tares, there's nothing. It's empty. Even though on the outside, they look the same. And they grow together in the same field. So God is the Lord of the harvest. And he has said, rather than immediately plucking up all the unfruitful crop, that would, he could do that, but he chooses not to, he will allow them to grow together until the final harvest. 
That means that in the church, there will be good crop along with, if we could just call it fake crop. From the outside, they'll look the same to many people. But the difference is what's inside. And that will not be fully determined until the harvest comes and the Lord separates the good from the bad. Um, so, who sowed the false seed? You, you can tell me. Who sowed the false seed? Satan. This is satanic influence. He went, Satan is the enemy that went out into the field and sowed his darnell, his tares, to try to ruin God's program, right? But it's just not going to happen. God's actually going to use this to bring glory to himself. So the scriptures are clear. It's satanic influence in people's lives. In the church from now until the rapture, this is really important, it's a key thought, believers and unbelievers will dwell together in the church. Now, I'm at a little bit of risk for saying this because I don't want you to go around thinking, ooh, who's, an, who's a tear? Oh my goodness, is there a tear here? Is there a tear? No, that, that's, that's not really the point, right? But you need to understand that the Lord has told us this in advance. This is how it will be. There will be unbelievers in every church. To, to a more or lesser degree. So unbelievers will always be present and therefore, as a logical conclusion, it should not be surprising when occasionally the unbelievers reveal themselves as Darnell. They won't always, but sometimes they will. So it, it, this is a really important parable uh, for understanding this particular principle. Um, by the way, I want to read 2 Corinthians 11 verses 12 and 15. I'll, I'll just jump over there real quick. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 12 through 15, <coughs> says this. Um, yep. But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Again, the Bible is very clear on this, that, that uh, Satan himself is doing this. It is part of his plan to transform people. And, and you know, I've often thought of it. You, you, you think about this, like, why would an unbeliever even want to live in the church if they don't really have a relationship to God? I, the Bible is very clear. It's a satanic influence in their lives. It has already been fo foretold. It, because there's a lot that the church asks people to do. I, I'm, I'm going to bring this back up again now. To live certain ways. To do certain things in specific ways. Right? There's a lot that's asked. So why would a person even want to live under that? And the answer is satanic influence in their life. That's, that's, that's all we can really come to. Um, but it's what the scriptures teach. So that's, that's the parable of the wheat and the tares. The next parable, uh, the next uh, section, uh, passage I wanted to talk about real briefly is Matthew 13, 3 through 23. That's the parable of the sower and the soils. It's in the same Matthew 13 parables. So if you just jump back to the beginning of Matthew, chapter 13, um, I'm, I don't want to take the time. It's, a, it's, it's such, so much rich truth in here. But uh, for the sake of time, I just want to uh, describe a little bit about what's going on in this parable. The sower here, the, the, a, a sower goes out into his field and sows seed, and it falls on four types of ground. 
Uh, that's the basic idea behind the, the parable. The sower himself is God or God's people, God's ministers. And the seed, again, is the word of God. So the sower is, is God specifically, but also his disciples who, who obey his command to go out into the world and cast out the word of God. And again, this is implications for evangelism and all that as well, right? Because our job is to what? Sow seed. The seed is not our own. We didn't make it. We don't have any responsibility for what crops bore, are born from it, but we have responsibility to cast seed. So really important that we remember that as well. The four types of soil represent the four types of heart as it receives the seed or the gospel of God. So there's the four types. The pathway is the first one, hard-packed. The pathway is the area where, where animals and, and carts and things would roll over in between the fields in, in the ancient world and farming. And so the pathway never had anything growing on it because the ground was hard-packed. And so if a seed fell on the pathway, it just it, there's no chance for it to grow because seeds need to be able to sprout, right? And they need to be able to, to, to have those roots go down into the soil. It's just never going to happen. The, the pathway is too hard-packed. Um, this is the uh, hard-packed heart that rejects the gospel outright, doesn't even want to hear it, slams the door in its face. <coughs> I'm going to jump right to the, the, good, the good soil, joyfully receives the, the seed and bears fruit of different yields, which I, I think are clearly the fruits of the Holy Spirit in this case, right? So the good seed is ground that is prepared properly to receive the word of God. Uh, it receives it, it's soft, it's humble, it's ready for the seed to go down in, and the seed will... Uh, will spring up and it will eventually bring to maturity fruit, some 30, some 60, some, uh, some 100 fold. It bears fruit. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. This is a person who's truly born again. But there are two other types of soil mentioned. There's the rocky soil, which, seems, which refers to people who initially receive the word of God with joy. And so I want you to think about this analogy. I, I, again, Jesus' analogies are just so incredibly rich. Um, they're so good. Rocky soil, it doesn't mean rocks on top, it means rocks right under the top soil. On the surface, again, it looks good, but you don't know that there's rocks right underneath there. So here's what happens. The seed falls on the, on the top soil, and it's, it's got a little bit of soil there to spring down a root, and here's the thing about it, right? The waters which come down, the rains which come down, soak that top soil really, really well, and actually provide almost a little bit better growth at the beginning, what appears to be growth at the very beginning, so that those seeds can spring up really quickly. But what eventually happens is when the rains pass, the sun comes out. The sun beats down on that topsoil and dries it out very quickly. Why? Because there's rocks there. And so the topsoil dries out very quickly. The seed cannot, the roots cannot go down any further. And uh, you, you know anything about farming, right? When it gets dry, when it gets hot, that root goes down deeper and deeper and deeper and so that it can still get nourishment. But if there's rocks there, there's nowhere to go. The sun dries out the soil, the sun dries out the root, and the plant dies. This is the person who receives the word of God with great joy because it sounds like, oh, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. God wants me to be his child and God wants to bless me. And Then all of a sudden things get hard in life. The sun comes out and really bakes them. And, and they, were, they weren't expecting that because they thought it was going to be something else. They thought it was all going to be maybe good from here on out. Or may, maybe things will get a little bit hard at times, but it won't get really hard, right? Because God doesn't really allow his people to suffer. So when life gets harder than they thought, 
they, they, they lose their faith in God. They step away and they say, this is not what I wanted, not what I expected. The other type, this is really the third type, is the thorny soil. So this has all kinds of seeds that are cast out onto it or that fall onto it along with the good seed. And again, the thorny soil receives, the, the soil receives the seed right away and it pops up just like good soil because it actually kind of is good soil in a, in a sense. It's ready to receive it. So it starts to grow and it starts to grow, but here's the thing. There are other seeds there as well that are growing up at the same time and they grow faster because <laughs> I, I live in Palolo Valley. I am absolutely amazed at how grass will not grow. Nothing good grows in Palolo Valley, but everything else that I don't want grows. It's an amazing thing. But the, the, the bad stuff will grow up faster and it grows up over it so that when the sun, which brings nourishment, comes down and you know, you, know how, you know how plants work with photosynthesis and all that, the sun is blocked out by the other thorny and, and briars and those things and it, it, the plant can no longer get nourishment. These are people who, they start well but the cares of this world turn their attention away. You know, I really want that nice house. I really want that job. I really, and they begin to focus on other things and it chokes the word of God from bringing fruit into their lives and they will die. They'll die in their faith. It just, they cannot bring to, to maturity any fruit. So these are th th another great example here. Now, there's a couple other things interesting in, in that parable as well. I'll just mention them really quickly. On the hard-packed soil, again, you have birds. And the hard-packed soil, the birds come and pluck the seaweed. The birds, again, symbolic of, of satanic influence. Jesus himself clearly says this, that the people who don't want to hear God's word at all will forget it immediately because Satan will come and, 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 and just take it away. So that's another aspect of, of that parable. Satan, again, is at work. Um, okay, so that, that leads me to the next. I'm going to mention a few more of the Matthew 13 parables, uh, just kind of almost in passing for the sake of time. But other Matthew 13 parables here, this would be the, the third section here under, under scriptural passages. Let us see other Matthew 13 parables. The mustard seed, the woman in the three measures of meal, and the dragnet. Um, these all have bearing on the idea of unbelief or apostasy in the world. So each of these parables has a key point of emphasis that unbelief will settle into the church. It's throughout the Matthew 13 parables. We're told there will be fruit in the Matthew 13 parables. It's not, it's not all uh, sad news. We're told there will be fruit. We're told there will be good things, but Jesus never hid this from his followers. There will be a lot of unbelief. So uh, the mustard seed, for example, this tree grows up, becomes a great tree, and, and and become the, becomes the greatest of trees, so to speak, even though it starts as a very small seed, symbolic of the church, starting with just, just 11 or 12 people and then rapid, rapidly increasing in size, spreading across the earth. But the birds come and nestle in its branches. And that's interesting. There, there, there's some debate on that, but I think the way that you interpret parables is by looking at the first parable for in insight. The first parable has birds as demonic influence, and this makes sense. The birds will come and nestle in the branches of the tree. They'll find home there. Again, this is very consistent with the teaching throughout the parables. Satanic influence will be present in God's church. Um, the second one is the woman and the three measures of meal. The yeast, so the woman gets three lumps of dough and puts yeast into all three of the lumps of dough, and we understand how this works. The yeast eventually begins to grow, and, and uh, when I explain to my, my students what yeast is and how it, how it works and why they like the taste of bread, they get kind of grossed out, but anyway. It, it causes the bread to expand. Why? Because there's a lot of gases in there 
as the yeast bacteria is eating the, the dough, right? It's eating the sugars and the things in it. And, it. and so the dough begins to rise. Now, what is going on here is, again, the church will start out as a pure lump of dough, but its numbers, its size will be expanded over time by false teaching. And, and, and again, whenever you have false teaching in the church, you're going to bring it, just get some false teaching in your church. You'll bring people in by the boatloads. You really will. Um, it, but if you stay pure, if you stay committed to the word of God, you'll actually repel a lot of people, but that's okay because you're committed to God and his truth. We don't want to repel people. We don't add offense to the message. But the, the, the parable of the woman and the three measures of meal indicates that the church over time will be corrupted, as we, especially as we draw closer and closer to the end times, by false teaching. Not a happy thought, but it's God's giving us information about what's going to happen. So. And, and the last one, the dragnet. Fishermen are out. They cast a large net behind them, and they drag it across the water. And as they drag this net across the water, it gathers all kinds of fish and even creatures. But not every creature that's gathered in there are creatures that you actually want. So when they pull in the net at the end, at the end of the age, when they pull in the net at the end of the age, and this is reference to, the, I think, the rapture of the church and the judgment that the church will face, um, when they pull it in, they're going to find a lot of good fish, but a lot of bad fish as well. And so in this case, the fisherman separates out the good fish from the bad fish, and the good fish are brought into as a harvest, and the bad fish are cast out or burned. Again, a reference to hell. But the dragnet is a reference, again, I think to the gospel and the teaching of God's word. It will gather many people, but not all the people that it gathers in its in its net will be true believers. And I think you can just look at, look at Christianity I at large and you see this very much. So again, the word of God tells us all these things. Only at the end will the faithful be separated from the unfaithful once and for all. Um, <clears throat> a couple other passages, I'm just gonna read these real quick. So the next passage, this, is, this would be letter D in my notes um, if, you're, if you're writing out notes. Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 and 23. I'll just kind of move through this one fairly quickly. Matthew seven, Verses 21 and 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say, oh, this is such a powerful statement. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Catch this, verse 23. Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's heavy. But we did all these things in your name. We were following the rules. We were obeying the principles. And Jesus is basically not, who are you? I don't know you. I never had a personal relationship with you. I don't, and, and all their good works, as the book of Romans said, will be counted as filthy rags because they didn't have a personal relationship and they'd never had repentance. So that, that's an important thought as well. Um, the next, next couple passages is, again, just moving through some of these really important ones that talk about unbelief. Uh, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. I'll read that real quick. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily or, or privately, they'll do it 
quietly, subtly, shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetousness, again, because of greed, because of their selfish desires, shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. They're just looking to get something out of you. They don't care about you at all. There will be these kinds of people who claim to be faithful. So there will always be apostates in the church. Always. And especially as we draw closer to the return of Christ. So that's, that's a, a should be, I believe that's an underline in your notes. So there will always be apostates in the church, especially as we draw closer to the return of Christ. Now, the last passage, and I, I, this is a tough one, and I, I debated whether or not to have this in my notes because it is one that many people struggle with, and there are differing opinions on this, but I, I wanted to tackle it because I think it's really, really rele relevant to this whole conversation of apostasy, is Hebrews chapter 6. It's a very well-known passage among people who study the Bible and, you know, in, in the debate over can you lose your salvation or is your salvation secure? Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. And... I, I'm going to take time to tackle it because I think it's really important to have a view on, on this passage. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put into an open shame. For the earth, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars, by the way, that was a, that was a, a, a phrase used in another passage, right, in the Matthew 13 parables. But, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. So this passage has caused considerable difficulty for many when it comes to the concept of eternal security. Um, however, I'm, I'm going to state this right at the beginning. I'll explain what the difficulty here is. Probably, it's probably the single most devastating passage of Scripture when it comes to believing that you can be saved, lose your salvation, and then you have to get resaved. It absolutely destroys that teaching thoroughly, demolishes it. And there's no other way to view this passage. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment. Um, because the text is clearly saying, if you fall away once you were once saved, you cannot come back. It is impossible. But I'll, I'll unpack, I think, what, what this, this uh, scripture is really, uh, really means. So this passage by itself would probably, in, it could warn an entire series. There's so many things to unpack in it. But let's just try to sum up the issue here in a few minutes with a few words. The writer of Hebrews and this is important, right? Okay. I think the way to understand most difficult passages in the scripture is to read the context. <laughs> this is so important when it comes to reading the Bible. Um, if I just pulled Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 and out, out of its context and said, well, what do you do with that? Oh, yeah, that's, that's hard. What do you do with that? I don't know. But if you go back and you look at the entire book of Hebrews, you really have to go back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews and understand what it's all about. Um, the writer of Hebrews has been arguing throughout the entire book 
that Jesus, and this is, I think, uh, one of the underlines in your notes, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice which fulfills the law of Moses. Over and over again. Oh, book of Hebrews is so good. It's tough to understand. And the reason it's tough to understand is that if you don't know the Old Testament sacrificial system really well, there's a lot of things in Hebrews that it's like, well, what does that mean? Well, what does that mean? So the book of Hebrews is deeply connected with the Old Testament sacrificial system, explaining to the people how you guys did this in the Old Testament, but understand that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all these things. It was always meant to be that way, that all those things pointed ahead to our great high priest, Jesus, the one, the final, the end of the story, so to speak, or you could say the beginning of the story, I suppose. But Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. And using that thought as an encouragement for these Hebrews, again, the book is called Hebrews because it was apparently written to, to, to Jewish people. It, it says that in the first chapter. Um, using that as an encouragement for Hebrews who trust in Jesus. You know who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was. You know what he did. His driving point is to encourage them to grow in Christ-likeness, not be like immature children. That's really his driving point through the entire book, and that's why he mentions a number of things. He, go, he, he tells them, stop, we shouldn't have to go back to the elementary things of really simple stuff about who Jesus is and your need for, for uh, repentance and all that and, and the need for God to give you righteousness. We should be moving on to, to more advanced things by this point. And then he goes, and he's encouraging them by the Hebrews chapter 11 with the heroes of the faith. Here's how they accomplished great things for God. Here's why God did it through them. And so it's really intended to take a bunch of people who maybe weren't quite living out God's will in their life because they were stuck in a little bit of carnality and say, let's keep moving forward. Let's keep moving forward for God. Let's keep growing. Now, the Mosaic system had priests from the tribe of Levi. So I, I got I a little bit of tall weeds here, forgive me. Um, the Mosaic system had priests from the tribe of Levi, right? So the, Le the Levites were the specific members of, uh, from the 12 tribes who conducted all the temple sacrifices and all those things. They were descendants of Aaron. They offered sacrifices year after year, but these sacrifices could never take away sin permanently, which is why they had to be offered year after year after year after year. They were simply pointing forward to something, but they could never of their own accord take away sin. Because the priests themselves were sinful, they had to offer sacrifices for themselves as well as other sacrifices that they would then offer on behalf of the nation and the people, right? So they themselves were sinners, but they were fulfilling God's role of, of, of being a mediator in that sense, temporarily. But here's the author of Hebrews. Here's his argument. Jesus, who is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and the name Melchizedek comes up a number of times in the book of Hebrews. It's a really interesting reference. Like, who is this Melchizedek figure, right? Um, Melchizedek is mentioned a number of times in Hebrews. He's this sort of cryptic king of Salem, this town called Salem, which again, was probably Jerusalem before uh, many, many years in the, uh, prior to us knowing it as Jerusalem in the time of Abraham and even before that. So this Melchizedek was apparently the king of a city called Salem. He's mentioned in Genesis 14, so you can read about him in Genesis 14. Jesus was perfect and could offer a perfect sacrifice, even though, and you may know this, right? Jesus was not from the tribe of Levi. What tribe was he from? Judah. Isn't that a little bit of a problem? Does he have to be from the tribe of Levi? And this is what the author of Hebrews is actually explaining, why Jesus didn't have to be from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah. 
When Jesus offered himself up on the cross, he was offered once for all and no other sacrifice would ever be needed. Melchizedek, it, uh, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek means that Jesus had a perfect sacrifice. He had no lineage before him. Nothing is said about his parents or where he came from. Jesus was the perfect fulfillment in that same way in that you don't have to be from the tribe of Levi. The, Levi, the tribe of Levi was always temporary. What you needed was a perfect life. And Melchizedek sort of represents that in the Old Testament um, in, a, in an analogy, and Jesus fulfills it perfectly. So what, what mattered was really a perfect life that had to be offered up. So in any case, moving on, in, in light of this, in chapter 6, the writer is of Hebrews is now warning the believing Jews of the dangers of falling away. Your great high priest is, and, and specifically related to going back to the principles of the law, which you see Paul have to talk to, to Jews about many, many times, right? Don't keep going back to the principles of the law and living according to these standards as though your works before God are prov providing for you some extra benefit or they must be accomplished in order for God to accept you. So here's the key thought. Jesus was offered up once for all. If you decide to reject Jesus as payment for your sins, there will be no further offer provided by God. This is it. This is what the entire Old Testament system looked forward to. Jesus fulfilled it all. It was always the point of God's plan unfolding for this to happen. So if you turn away from Jesus as a sacrifice and you go back to other things, there's no more sacrifice for you. God's not going to come to you and say, no, he's not going to plead for you. He's given you <laughs> abundant evidence that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God in the flesh, is your perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the ultimate and final payment. A person who rejects him will not have another opportunity. Um, the key controversy now centers around verses 4 through 5. So if you have your, your text open real quick, uh, Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5, what is meant by enlightened or tasting the heavenly gift? Um, do these mean, uh, what about partakers of the Holy Ghost? What about tasting the word of God, powers of the world to come? Did, does this mean that these people were truly saved? Here's the controversy. Were these people truly saved? Because somebody who's enlightened and tasted of the heavenly gift and all that, doesn't, doesn't that sound like salvation language? Now, the answer to this has to be no. Because God chastises those of his children whom, whom heirs, but he does not chastise. And again, we've talked about eternal security at length, and I'm going to explain to you why I think this is misinterpreted by many people. Um, the answer to this is no. They do not, these words do not refer to a born-again person. Now, I don't have to guess at this just because of other theological views. It's actually here in the passage as well. So if you, if you listen to those things, so one more time in verses 4 and 5, um, it is impossible for those who once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, made partakers of the Holy Ghost, tasted of the good world, a good word of God and the world to come, the powers of the world to come, um, is explained actually in verses 7 and 8, what that means. And this is where it's really helpful for us. Uh, again, the God's word tends to explain itself. The brains or the blessings of God come down from heaven and bless both the righteous and the unrighteous. God's blessings are clearly seen by people in the world as they come down and water the ground as they provide benefits to mankind. And they come in the form of 
the Holy Spirit, seeing the Holy Spirit at work. They come in the form of the Word of God. All these things that he's just talked about in verses 4 and 5. Understanding the future, what God's going to do in regards to judgment and all these things and, and ultimate deliverance from our sin, sinful flesh. All these things. Anyone can see and understand that. And the verses 7 and 8 indicate that the rain comes down, it waters these people, and here's what happens. And this is consistent with the parables. In some cases, up springs herbs that are good and useful. In other cases, what springs up? Thorns and briars. When the word of God comes to some people, it will simply end up producing thorns and briars. So the teaching of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8 does not suggest somebody who has once been saved and now lost their salvation. It is people who are under the word of God and see the blessings of God and, and, and know what God's word says about the future and all these things. Among some of us who are believers, it will bring forth good fruit. Among others, it will bring forth thorns and briars. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how it works, but that's what God's word says. That's what it says. So I don't really have a problem with this passage when we understand it in its full context. And here's what Paul is saying. Or I, I say Paul. I think it's Paul. We don't know who it is. Here's what the writer is saying. Uh, and he says this later in the chapter. I have a better hope. I don't think this is you. I don't think this is you. You're kind of living carnal. You're not really maturing right now. But I have a pretty good idea that the fruit I've seen in your lives is good. And, and, and I've seen it grow, and I'm encouraging you to keep moving forward in your faith. Don't go back to the things that are going to hold you back. Prove that you are truly God's children. Prove that you are truly born again. And move on. Move forward in your walk with God. Don't be held back. That's really the teaching in Hebrews chapter 6. He, Paul wants, uh, the, the writer wants these people to know, uh, don't go backwards, keep moving forwards. Show that you are not like these people. Because... Here's the reality. If that is you, if you decide you want to go back to the law, if you decide you want to go back to the base things of this world, there will be no further sacrifice for you. You cannot be restored. And that's a scary thought. I mean, I, 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 it is what the text says. It is impossible. That is a superlative word. Impossible means it can't happen. That if somebody could partake of all these things and see them all and then decide to get up and walk away from God, if they could see that all and get up and walk away from God, there's nothing more for them. God's not going to show them anything else. They already have the maximum. Think about this, and this is a really important thought. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to take time, but um, <laughs> this, is, this is a really important thought. What is the absolute maximum thing that you can imagine a supreme being doing? He doesn't need food, he doesn't need houses, he doesn't need water, air, or anything else. He doesn't need anything. In order to demonstrate his love for people, what is the greatest thing he could give up? He's not gonna give up money. He's not gonna, he can't just be, not be omniscient or anything like that. It's in his nature, all those things are in his nature. So what's the maximum thing he could do? Well, I suppose he could humble himself live as a human being, and be murdered by the very people that he is there to deliver and save, all because of his great love. Can you think of anything greater than this that God could do to demonstrate his love for people? I, it's, it's I, I mean, for me, I can't. It's impossible. So 
When I think of this, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying to the people. Don't turn your back on this. Don't turn your back on this. This is the greatest truth the world has ever known. Don't turn your back on this. Really important. Um, so uh, th those terms, I mean, enlightened simply refers to the fact that the truth of God has brought light to people who are in darkness. That's what it really means here. It's not like a, a, um, the spirit revealing like within. It's, and, and even first uh, John 1, 9 says this, Jesus is the light of the world that brings light to every man when he comes into the world, right? So he brings light to everybody. Um, but not everybody who receives the light ends up being saved. And so these are consistent teachings throughout the scripture. We don't, I don't think we really have to wonder at this. Um, so the other thing is that uh, he says is that, for example, he mentions um, seeing the, the power of God at work or seeing the spirit, part, uh, tasted of the gifts of the spirit. Think about this. For the, for the people that this, the author is writing to, they were probably, many of them, if not all of them, there at Pentecost. They watched these things happen. They saw the Spirit at work, not just in people's lives, but physically manifested before them. So the warning to them is even greater, right? You were there. You saw it happen. Don't turn your back on this. Again, tasting the goodness of the Word of God relates to anyone who's able to see the wisdom God gives through his scriptures. They, they, they know that it changes people's lives. All these elements can be experienced outwardly by someone who attaches himself to a body of true believers, even apart from the true indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But again, here's the real part, uh, point the writer is making. Um, as witnesses of God's power in all of these different ways, knowing the gospel, seeing, all these, seeing God at work, understanding the future and what God is going to do, you still decide to reject God and live as worldly people. There will be no further opportunity. Um, it is impossible. That is, I, I want that word to kind of ring in your ears. It's an important word. It is impossible to restore such people who receive God's blessings but produce thorns and briars. Why? They've decided they don't want it. They've decided they don't want it. Um, so God, there will be no further revelation to change their mind. It, to me, this appears to me, and I, again, I'm not here to rip Bart Ehrman, I'm not here to rip Joshua Harrison, but if they were partakers in the way that Hebrews chapter six is saying, then it, it would not necessarily make sense to, to pray for them, to chide them, to come alongside them. They already know. They've made a full, knowledgeable decision, and they have gone the way of the apostate. That's what an apostate is, somebody who has left when they know what God's word says. They will not repent in the future because of their own choices. Okay, that brings me to point number four. Why do some, apost uh, some apostatize, out apostatize outwardly? So some, some stay hidden in the church and some come outwardly. This one is a difficult question to answer, but statements of men like Barnum and Josh Harris can provide some insight. Josh Harris talked a lot about outward conformity. I already mentioned that. He, he, he said that a number of times. I called people to live in very specific ways. Um, you almost get the impression that for Josh, I, he didn't mention anything about Jesus, about a relationship with God, about repentance of sins. None of that was in his discussion. He just basically said something to the effect of, hey, my job is basically to tell you what you can and cannot do and to, uh, to, to hold you accountable when you don't do it or when you do do it or whatever. That, that seemed to be kind of where his approach was. Um, he talks about calling people to sacrifice in very specific ways. But here's a question for you. Is the primary call of the gospel about sacrificing the things you want to do in your life? <laughs> or 
Or is the primary call of the gospel about repentance of sins and a restored relationship with your father? Which one comes first? Because if you can sacrifice your life and the things you want to do all day long and you will end up like the people in Matthew chapter 7 who Jesus says to them, I never knew you. You did this your own way. You didn't do it my way. I don't know you. <clears throat> so th th these things, are, he, Josh spoke in very general terms about God, but Jesus was not mentioned in any of his discussions. Similarly, Bart Ehrman, he struggled with the concept of how a good God could allow so much pointless suffering. Now, he didn't use the word pointless in his discussion, right? He didn't actually say pointless suffering, but that seems to be kind of in his, in his meaning. He talks about intense suffering. How can a good God allow intense suffering? Okay, how about this? Maybe a little suffering. We all know that we have some rough edges that need to be knocked out, and maybe a little bit of suffering is okay, but intense suffering? No way. Good God doesn't do that. Doesn't allow intense suffering in people's lives. It's just no use. And by Ehrman's own admission, this is one of the key things that turned him away. That's what he said. This is an anecdote that revealed to him, reveals from him why he was eventually turned away, because he saw people suffering and said, I don't have a good answer for that. I don't have a good answer for that. By the way, does God's word have an answer for that? Yeah. You better believe it does. You know it does. Here's a key thought. What apostates and many unbelievers seem to miss is that suffering is an absolute necessity because it draws us closer to God and conforms us to the image of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says. Um, can I, get a, can I get just th three volunteers real quick? I just want you guys to look up three separate passages. Anybody? Uh, somebody, Romans 8, 28 through 29. Romans 5, 1 through 5. And James 1, 2 through 4. Uh, so Romans 8, 28 and 29, anybody? Quickly. Okay. Uh, Bennett, uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5. Okay, over there, Josh. And James 1, 2 through 4. <laughs> Tallulah, okay. <laughs> um, we'll, go, we'll go over here. Go ahead, Brandon. Um, so as soon as you get them, as soon as you're able to get them, Romans 8, 28 and 29. God's purpose in everything he does for you is, convert you is to convert you from your sinful, selfish, and let's be honest, useless self into the image, into the likeness of Jesus. And it's just something about human nature. The primary means by which that happens is through difficult times. The scriptures are crystal clear. God wants you to come as you are. That's the only way you can come. You can't come with your righteousness anyway, but you're not going to stay as you are. Many people like the, like the idea of coming as they are. They want the peace stuff, the love stuff, the community stuff, the blessing stuff. Like they want all the stuff, but they aren't willing to continue once they learn the truth about what God's word requires of them. It demands death to self because likeness, the likeness of Jesus is the goal for you and me likeness of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, writing through Paul, Paul said it beautifully in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Jesus suffered on your behalf because he loved you. And if you would become like Jesus, you must also be willing to suffer so that you can draw close to him and demonstrate God's love and glory to a lost world. It's the only way it's going to happen. And the world sees it through suffering. But for the apostate, the words of 1 Corinthians 2.14 ring, ring a little bit louder. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man would not receive this. 
An unbeliever cannot possibly see suffering as a worthwhile pursuit. There's nothing in it. Last one, point five, is it possible for me to become an apostate? Can people fall away? And obviously, I think this is really important to address. Is it possible that anyone, even I myself, so me here, John Stoker, is it possible that I myself might, uh, might at some point start to lose my faith in God? It's a scary thought if it's true. So it's something that we should all understand. You'll face opposition if you're obeying Jesus, that's for sure. You can't stay as you are in your sin nature and be a disciple of Jesus Christ at the same time. You can't have a whole bunch of doors, so to speak, in the room of your heart where you're just like, no, that one's locked, no, that one's locked, no, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Um, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. So eventually, many of these so-called disciples, many of these people that outward have, outwardly have some appearance of conformity, um, begin to finally really understand this, or, 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 or they're just not happy. And they begin to, the word is deconstruct their faith. That's the word you see commonly thrown around now in Christian circles. But they don't find, as they pull apart piece by piece and evaluate, do I believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that? And they begin to take apart this life that they have built. No, it's a life that they've built. It's not a life that God has built. It wasn't built on God's foundation. But as they begin to, begin to deconstruct piece by piece, there's nothing left of value. There's nothing there. The building, after, after deconstructing everything that they have built and looking at what has God built, there's nothing because the glory of God and a closer walk with Jesus is not in their thinking. Drawing close, one more time, drawing close to Jesus is not primary in their thinking. God is more like an unreasonable taskmaster demanding obedience in all things, even in their thinking, pointless things. God do this, God do that, can't do this, can't do that. I don't know why, it just is what it is. Their suffering, their struggles have no purpose. They still go through struggles, right? Because all humans go through struggles and all humans observe struggles and suffering in others. And since they, here, this is a key thought, is really important. Since they don't have the experience of the joy of a closer walk with Jesus through the sufferings, there's nothing there. For the Christian, the sufferings bring you closer to Christ. The suffering causes you to love God more. It draws you near to him. But for the unbeliever, they're suffering with no joy because there's no relationship. They don't have it. Nothing to fall back. There's nothing there to, to draw them closer. If I have a relationship with Jesus and I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within, I can also have the wisdom that helps me see what God is doing through difficult situations, uh, even intense persecution and suffering, even to the point of death. And even if I don't, I know God is good. I, there's nowhere else to go. And God is good and I trust him. My suffering draws me closer to Jesus. It makes me love him even more. I am not bitter or angry. Here's an important thought. I don't become bitter or angry because I know Jesus is worthy. I know he's worthy. One final scriptural thought really impacted me, and I'm, yeah, again, I, I want to finish out with this because it, it, it was so emblazoned in my mind as I was studying through these thoughts. We'll close with this. In John 6, John chapter 6, Jesus specifically tells his disciples, and this is a hard saying, that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no part with him. He says this in a, in a synagogue in Capernaum. 
Many of his people, the people, now this is er fairly early in his ministry, right? So it's an early part of John. Fairly early in his ministry, many of the people that have been following around and like what's going on, they like what they see, are very offended by this teaching. Very offended by it. And many of them turn away and leave. Jesus then turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them, will you also go away? Will you also leave? Peter's response is incredibly insightful into the mind of a true believer. This is how a true believer thinks about things. He says, Lord, to whom would we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Even if I didn't like it, where else would I go? There's nowhere else that can provide salvation. Even in my darkest hour, when I feel the greatest burden, I know my God has the words of eternal life and I know I will not find hope in any other. But I've experienced his and tasted of his goodness as well. Uh, I also know this, if I make it through that trial, I will be closer to my Lord than ever before and God will get great glory in the world and that's my primary focus. How do I glorify God with my life? To live is Christ, to die is gain. You catch that? All these, all these statements in the scripture come together. Each person must ask himself. So this is where I now kind of speak to you. Is it possible I could become apostate? What am I seeking from God? What do you expect him to do? True believers cannot apostatize because they know the truth. Life is not about a rose garden. Life is not, God is not a genie that's there to give you everything you want, make your life easy. No, he's there to draw you close to him and to get glory from it. Unbelievers apostatize because the wisdom of God is foolishness to the rebellious heart. Now, I don't intend to frighten anyone, but here's the call, right? When we talk about apostasy, there has to be a call like this and a message like this. I call you to consider your willingness to be conformed to the image of Christ. Think about this. Is this something that you're willing to do? The answer you give will be of the absolute utmost highest importance. Am I willing to suffer for Christ? Am I willing to go through those trials to be drawn closer to him so that God is glorified in everything that I do? And again, um, that's the thought I need to leave with you. The apostate does not look, might live conformed to, the, the, to some of the outward rules for a time, but there's no relationship there. There's no desire to grow closer to Jesus in the long run, and that has to come out eventually. Um, for the believer, however, Man, even the bad things that happen, the things that are painful, things that are uncomfortable, I look at them and I say, if Jesus went through what he went through, I can go through this too. God will bring me out stronger on the other side. It's okay. In fact, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The believer can look at that passage and say, it's 100% true. I get it. I get it. So, Again, the call is to think about this and think about your own heart and your own life. What are, you, what, are you, what are you expecting? What are you seeking from God? Are you willing to see what his word says and, and count the cost, those kinds of things? Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.